Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Welcome to episode 294 of Forgotten Classics, where we will be finishing the Robert Louis Stevenson mystery, Pavilion on the Links. First, though... Let me tell you about another podcast, which is actually a BBC drama. Now, no one does audio drama better than the BBC. They've got wonderful actors, wonderful stories, and wonderful sound effects. This one is called Tuman Bay. It is pretty new because they've just had the first two or three episodes come out. It's going to be 10 parts. And it's based on the Mamluk slave dynasty of Egypt, which I never heard of before. It follows the master of the palace guard who's charged with rooting out a rebellion insurgents and crushing it before it destroys the empire. But the interesting thing about it is that although it's based on this ancient empire, because of the really interesting idea that it was a slave empire, it was basically developed by people who were slaves, then made into soldiers, then took over the government. And now you're seeing the dynasty that has resulted from that. But it's kind of one of those inspired by in that it's looking at the ancient dynastic politics, but it's also saying things about our time. So you've got things like the plague, but you also have other things like slavery, religion, all these things that have not gone away, but we're looking at now. And it's just wonderfully done. Right now, they've got a variety of storylines, all these different characters who've had all these things happen. And because it is the BBC who is so good at doing this and finding the talent for it, it's really easy to keep track of all of it. And it's really engaging so far. I'm really interested. That 45 minutes just flies by. So definitely give it a try, Tuman Bay. Now, let's get to our own mystery, which is definitely something that is closer in our time, something we can understand. We've got the romance, we've got the rivalry between Northmore and Cassilis, and we have the dastardly Bernard Huddlestone, Clara's father. He is a right old villain, isn't he? There was not much likable about him, but he's Clara's father, so, you know, we're going to at least try to get him out of it alive. As I said, this finishes things up, and next time, I hope to have a Christmas story for you. Something a little different. But we're not done with this story yet. Dive in. The Pavilion on the Links by Robert Louis Stevenson 7. The recollection of that afternoon will always be graven on my mind. Northmore and I were persuaded that an attack was imminent, and if it had been in our power to alter in any way the order of events, that power would have been used to precipitate rather than to delay the critical moment. The worst was to be anticipated, yet we could conceive no extremity so miserable as the suspense we were now suffering. 
I have never been an eager, though always a great, reader, but I never knew books so insipid as those which I took up and cast aside that afternoon in the pavilion. Even talk became impossible as the hours went on. One or other was always listening for some sound or peering from an upstairs window over the links, and yet not a sign indicated the presence of our foes. We debated over and over again my proposal with regard to the money, and had we been in complete possession of our faculties, I am sure we should have condemned it as unwise. But we were flustered with alarm, grasped at a straw, and determined, although it was as much as advertising Mr. Huddlestone's presence in the pavilion, to carry my proposal into effect. The sum was in part specie, part in bank paper, and part in circular notes payable to the name of James Gregory. We took it out, counted it, enclosed it once more in a dispatch box belonging to Northmore, and prepared a letter in Italian which he tied to the handle. It was signed by both of us under oath, and declared that this was all the money which had escaped the failure of the house of Huddlestone. This was perhaps the maddest action ever perpetrated by two persons professing to be sane. Had the dispatch box fallen into other hands than those for which it was intended, we stood criminally convicted on our own written testimony. But, as I have said, we were neither of us in a condition to judge soberly and had a thirst for action that drove us to do something, right or wrong, rather than to endure the agony of waiting. Moreover, as we were both convinced that the hollows of the links were alive with hidden spies upon our movements, we hoped that our appearance with the box might lead to a parley, and perhaps a compromise. It was nearly three when we issued from the pavilion. The rain had taken off, the sun shone quite cheerfully. I had never seen the gulls fly so close about the house, or approach so fearlessly to human beings. On the very doorstep one flapped heavily past our heads and uttered its wild cry in my very ear. "'There is an omen for you,' said Northmore, who, like all freethinkers, was much under the influence of superstition. "'They think we are already dead.' I made some light rejoinder, but it was with half my heart, for the circumstance had impressed me. A yard or two before the gate— on a patch of smooth turf, we sat down the dispatch box, and Northmore waved a white handkerchief over his head. Nothing replied. We raised our voices and cried aloud in Italian that we were there as ambassadors to arrange the quarrel, but the stillness remained unbroken save by the seagulls and the surf. I had a weight at my heart when we desisted, and I saw that even Northmore was unusually pale. He looked over his shoulder nervously, as though he feared that someone had crept between him and the pavilion door. "'By God!' he said in a whisper. "'This is too much for me.' I replied in the same key. "'Suppose there should be none, after all.' "'Look there!' he returned, nodding with his head, as though he had been afraid to point." I glanced in the direction indicated, and there from the northern quarter of the sea wood beheld a thin column of smoke rising steadily against the now cloudless sky. Northmore, I said. We still continued to talk in whispers. It is not possible to endure this suspense. I prefer death fifty times over. Stay you here to watch the pavilion. I will go forward and make sure if I have to walk right into their camp. 
He looked once again all around him with puckered eyes, then nodded assentingly to my proposal. My heart beat like a sledgehammer as I set out walking rapidly in the direction of the smoke, and though up to that moment I had felt chill and shivering, I was suddenly conscious of a glow of heat all over my body. The ground in this direction was very uneven. A hundred men might have lain hidden in as many square yards about my path. But I, who had not practiced the business in vain, chose such routes as cut at the very root of concealment, and by keeping along the most convenient ridges, commanded several hollows at a time. It was not long before I was rewarded for my caution. Coming suddenly onto a mound somewhat more elevated than the surrounding hummocks, I saw not thirty yards away a man bent almost double and running as fast as his attitude permitted along the bottom of a gully. I had dislodged one of the spies from his ambush. As soon as I sighted him, I called loudly in both English and Italian, and he, seeing concealment was no longer possible, straightened himself out, leapt from the gully, and made off straight as an arrow for the borders of the wood. It was none of my business to pursue. I had learned what I wanted, that we were beleaguered and watched in the pavilion, and I returned at once and walked as nearly as possible in my old footsteps to where Northmore awaited me beside the dispatch box. He was even paler than when I had left him, and his voice shook a little. "'Could you see what he was like?' he asked. "'He kept his back turned,' I replied. "'Let us get into the house, Frank. I don't think I'm a coward, but I can stand no more of this,' he whispered. All was still and sunshiny about the pavilion as we turned to re-enter it. Even the gulls had flown in a wider circuit, and were seen flickering along the beach and sandhills, and this loneliness terrified me more than a regiment under arms. It was not until the door was barricaded that I could draw a full inspiration and relieve the weight that lay upon my bosom. Northmore and I exchanged a steady glance, and I suppose each made his own reflections on the white and startled aspect of the other. "'You were right,' I said." All is over. Shake hands, old man, for the last time. Yes, replied he. I will shake hands, for as sure as I am here, I bear no malice. But remember, if by some impossible accident we should give the slip to these blackguards, I'll take the upper hand of you by fair or foul. Ugh, said I. You weary me. He seemed hurt and walked away in silence to the foot of the stairs where he paused. "'You do not understand,' said he. "'I am not a swindler, and I guard myself, that is all. "'I may weary you or not, Mr. Cassilis. "'I do not care a rush. "'I speak for my own satisfaction, and not for your amusement. "'You had better go upstairs and court the girl. "'For my part, I stay here.' "'And I stay with you,' I returned. "'Do you think I would steal a march, even with your permission?' "'Frank,' he said, smiling, it's a pity you are an ass, for you have the makings of a man. I think I must be fay today. You cannot irritate me even when you try. Do you know, he continued softly, I think we are the two most miserable men in England, you and I. We have got on to thirty without wife or child, or so much as a shop to look after. Poor pitiful lost devils both. And now we clash about a girl, as if there were not several million in the United Kingdom. 
<sighs> Frank, Frank, the one who loses his throw, be it you or me, he has my pity. It were better for him, how does the Bible say, that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the depth of the sea. Let us take a drink. He concluded suddenly, but without any levity of tone. I was touched by his words and consented. He sat down on the table in the dining room and held up a glass of sherry to his eye. If you beat me, Frank, he said, I shall take to drink. What will you do if it goes the other way? God knows, I returned. Well, said he, here's a toast in the meantime. Italia irredenta. The remainder of the day was passed in the same dreadful tedium and suspense. I laid the table for dinner, while Northmore and Clara prepared the meal together in the kitchen. I could hear their talk as I went to and fro, and was surprised to find that it ran all the time upon myself. Northmore again bracketed us together, and rallied Clara on a choice of husbands. But he continued to speak of me with some feeling, and uttered nothing to my prejudice, unless he included himself in the condemnation. This awakened a sense of gratitude in my heart, which combined with the immediateness of our peril to fill my eyes with tears. After all, I thought, <laughs> and perhaps the thought was laughably vain, we were here three very noble human beings to perish in defense of a thieving banker. Before we sat down to table, I looked forth from an upstairs window. The day was beginning to decline. The links were utterly deserted. The dispatch box still lay untouched where we had left it hours before. Mr. Huddlestone, in a long yellow dressing gown, took one end of the table, Clara the other, while Northmore and I faced each other from the sides. The lamp was brightly trimmed, the wine was good, the viands, though mostly cold, excellent of their sort. We seemed to have agreed tacitly, all reference to the impending catastrophe was carefully avoided, and, considering our tragic circumstances, we made a merrier party than could have been expected. From time to time, it is true, Northmore or I would rise from the table and make a round of the defenses, and on each of these occasions Mr. Huddlestone was recalled to a sense of his tragic predicament, glanced up with ghastly eyes, and bore for an instant on his countenance the stamp of terror. But he hastened to empty his glass, wiped his forehead with his handkerchief, and joined again in the conversation. I was astonished at the wit and information he displayed. Mr. Huddlestone's was certainly no ordinary character. He had read and observed for himself. His gifts were sound. And though I could never have learned to love the man, I began to understand his success in business and the great respect in which he had been held before his failure. He had, above all, the talent of society. And though I never heard him speak, but on this one and most unfavorable occasion, I set him down among the most brilliant conversationalists I ever met. He was relating with great gusto, and seemingly no feeling of shame, the maneuvers of a scoundrelly commission merchant whom he had known and studied in his youth, and we were all listening with an odd mixture of mirth and embarrassment, when our little party was brought abruptly to an end in the most startling manner. A noise like that of a wet finger on the window pane interrupted Mr. Huddlestone's tale, and in an instant we were all four as white as paper, and sat tongue-tied and motionless round the table. "'A snail,' I said at last. 
for I had heard that these animals make a noise somewhat similar in character. Snail be damned, said Northmore. Hush! The same sound was repeated twice at regular intervals, and then a formidable voice shouted through the shutters the Italian window. Traditore! Mr. Huddlestone threw his head in the air. His eyelids quivered. Next moment he fell insensible below the table. Northmore and I had each run to the armory and seized a gun. Clara was on her feet with her hand at her throat. So we stood waiting, for we thought the hour of attack was certainly come. But second passed after second, and all but the surf remained silent in the neighborhood of the pavilion. Quick, said Northmore, upstairs with him before they come. 8. Somehow or other, by hook and crook, and between the three of us, we got Bernard Huddlestone bundled upstairs and laid upon the bed in my uncle's room. During the whole process, which was rough enough, he gave no sign of consciousness, and he remained as we had thrown him, without changing the position of a finger. His daughter opened his shirt, and began to wet his head and bosom, while Northmore and I ran to the window. The weather continued clear. The moon, which was now about full, had risen and shed a very clear light upon the links. Yet strain our eyes as we might, we could distinguish nothing moving. A few dark spots, more or less, on the uneven expanse were not to be identified. They might be crouching men. They might be shadows. It was impossible to be sure. Thank God, said Northmore. Aggie is not coming tonight. Aggie was the name of the old nurse. He had not thought of her until now, but that he should think of her at all was a trait that surprised me in the man. We were again reduced to waiting. Northmore went to the fireplace and spread his hands before the red embers as if he were cold. I followed him mechanically with my eyes, and in so doing turned my back upon the window. At that moment a very faint report was audible from without, and a ball shivered a pane of glass and buried itself in the shutter two inches from my head. I heard Clara scream, and though I whipped instantly out of range and into a corner, she was there, so to speak, before me, beseeching to know if I were hurt. I felt that I could stand to be shot at every day and all day long with such remarks of solicitude for a reward, and I continued to reassure her with the tenderest of caresses and in complete forgetfulness of our situation until the voice of Northmore recalled me to myself. An air gun, he said. They wish to make no noise. I put Clara aside and looked at him. He was standing with his back to the fire and his hands clasped behind him, and I knew by the black look on his face that passion was boiling within. I had seen such a look before he attacked me that March night in the adjoining chamber, and though I could make every allowance for his anger, I confess I trembled for the consequences. He gazed straight before him, but he could see us with the tail of his eye, and his temper kept rising like a gale of wind. With regular battle awaiting us outside, this prospect of an internecine strife within the walls began to daunt me. Suddenly, as I was thus closely watching his expression, and prepared against the worst, I saw a change, a flash, a look of relief upon his face. He took up the lamp which stood beside him on the table, and turned to us with an air of some excitement. "'There is one point that we must know,' said he. 
Are they going to butcher the lot of us, or only Huddlestone? Did they take you for him, or fire at your own beaux yeux? They took me for him for certain, I replied. I am near as tall, and my head is fair. I am going to make sure, returned Northmore, and he stepped up to the window, holding the lamp above his head, and stood there quietly affronting death for half a minute. Clara sought to rush forward and pull him from the place of danger, but I had the pardonable selfishness to hold her back by force. Yes, said Northmore, turning coolly from the window. It's only Huddlestone they want. Oh, Mr. Northmore, cried Clara, but found no more to add, the temerity she had just witnessed seeming beyond the reach of words. He on his part looked at me, cocking his head with a fire of triumph in his eyes, and I understood at once that he had thus hazarded his life merely to attract Clara's notice and depose me from my position as the hero of the hour. He snapped his fingers. The fire is only beginning, said he. When they warm up to their work, they won't be so particular. A voice was now heard hailing us from the entrance. From the window we could see the figure of a man in the moonlight. He stood motionless, his face uplifted to ours, and a rag of something white on his extended arm. And as we looked right down upon him, though he was a good many yards distant on the links, we could see the moonlight glitter on his eyes. He opened his lips again, and spoke for some minutes on end in a key so loud that he might have been heard in every corner of the pavilion, and as far away as the borders of the wood. It was the same voice that had already shouted, Traditore, through the shutters of the dining-room. This time it made a clear and complete statement. If the traitor Adelstone were given up, all others should be spared. If not, no one should escape to tell the tale. Well, Huddlestone, what do you say to that? asked Northmore, turning to the bed. Up to that moment the banker had given no sign of life, and I, at least, had supposed him to be still lying in a faint. But he replied at once, and in such tones as I have never heard elsewhere, save from a delirious patient, adjured and besought us not to desert him. It was the most hideous and abject performance that my imagination can conceive. Enough, cried Northmore, and then he threw open the window, leaned out into the night, and in a tone of exultation, and with a total forgetfulness of what was due to the presence of a lady, poured upon the ambassador a string of the most abominable raillery both in English and Italian, and bade him be gone where he had come from. I believe that nothing so delighted Northmore at that moment as the thought that we must all infallibly perish before the night was out. Meantime, the Italian put his flag of truce into his pocket and disappeared at a leisurely pace among the sandhills. They make honorable war, said Northmore. They are all gentlemen and soldiers. For the credit of the thing, I wish we could change sides, you and I, Frank, and you too, Missy, my darling, and leave that being on the bed to someone else. Tut! Don't look shocked. We are all going post to what they call eternity, and may as well be above board while there's time. As far as I am concerned, if I could first strangle Huddlestone, and then get Clara in my arms, I could die with some pride and satisfaction. And as it is, 
By God, I'll have a kiss. Before I could do anything to interfere, he had rudely embraced and repeatedly kissed the resisting girl. Next moment I had pulled him away with fury and flung him heavily against the wall. He laughed long and loud, and I feared his wits had given way under the strain, for even in the best of days he had been a sparing and a quiet laugher. "'Now, Frank,' said he when his mirth was somewhat appeased, "'it's your turn. Here's my hand. Goodbye. Farewell.' Then seeing me stand rigid and indignant and holding Clara to my side, "'Man,' he broke out, "'are you angry? Did you think we were going to die with all the airs and graces of society? I took a kiss. I'm glad I did it, and now you can take another if you like and square accounts.' I turned from him with a feeling of contempt which I did not seek to dissemble. "'As you please,' said he. "'You've been a prig in life. A prig you'll die.' And with that he sat down in a chair, a rifle over his knee, and amused himself with snapping the lock. But I could see his ebullition of light spirits, the only one I ever knew him to display, had already come to an end and was succeeded by a sullen, scowling humor. All this time our assailants might have been entering the house, and we none the wiser. We had, in truth, almost forgotten the danger that so imminently overhung our days. But just then Mr. Huddlestone uttered a cry and leaped from the bed. I asked him what was wrong. "'Fire!' he cried. "'They have set the house on fire!' Northmore was on his feet in an instant, and he and I ran through the door of communication with the study. The room was illuminated by a red and angry light. Almost at the moment of our entrance, a tower of flame arose in front of the window, and with a tingling report, a pain fell inward on the carpet. They had set fire to the lean-to outhouse, where Northmore used to nurse his negatives. "'Hot work,' said Northmore. "'Let us try in your old room.' We ran thither in a breath, threw up the casement, and looked forth. Along the whole back wall of the pavilion, piles of fuel had been arranged and kindled, and it is probable they had been drenched with mineral oil, for in spite of the morning's rain, they all burned bravely. The fire had taken a firm hold already on the outhouse, which blazed higher and higher every moment. The back door was in the center of a red-hot bonfire. The eaves we could see as we looked upward were already smoldering, for the roof overhung and was supported by considerable beams of wood. At the same time, hot, pungent, and choking volumes of smoke began to fill the house. There was not a human being to be seen to right or left. "'Ah, well,' said Northmore, "'here's the end, thank God.' and we returned to my uncle's room. Mr. Huddlestone was putting on his boots, still violently trembling, but with an air of determination such as I had not hitherto observed. Clara stood close by, with her cloak in both hands ready to throw about her shoulders, and a strange look in her eyes as if she were half hopeful, half doubtful of her father. "'Well, boys and girls,' said Northmore, "'how about a sally?' The oven is heating. It is not good to stay here and be baked, and for my part I want to come to my hands with them and be done. There's nothing else left, I replied. And both Clara and Mr. Huddlestone, though with a very intonation, added, Nothing. As we went downstairs, the heat was excessive, 
and the roaring of the fire filled our ears, and we had scarce reached the passage before the stairs window fell in. A branch of flame shot brandishing through the aperture, and the interior of the pavilion became lighted up with that dreadful and fluctuating glare. At the same moment, we heard the fall of something heavy and inelastic in the upper story. The whole pavilion, it was plain, had gone alight like a box of matches, and now not only flamed sky-high to land and sea, but threatened with every moment to crumble and fall in about our ears. Northmore and I cocked our revolvers. Mr. Huddlestone, who had already refused a firearm, put us behind him with a manner of command. "'Let Clara open the door,' said he. "'So if they fire a volley, she will be protected.' and in the meantime stand behind me. I am the scapegoat. My sins have found me out. I heard him as I stood breathless by his shoulder with my pistol ready, pattering off prayers in a tremulous rapid whisper, and I confess, horrid as the thought may seem, I despised him for thinking of supplications in a moment so critical and thrilling. In the meantime, Clara, who was dead white but still possessed her faculties, had displaced the barricade from the front door. Another moment, and she had pulled it open. Firelight and moonlight illuminated the links with confused and changeful luster, and far away against the sky we could see a long trail of glowing smoke. Mr. Huddlestone, filled for the moment with a strength greater than his own, struck Northmore and myself a backhander in the chest, and while we were thus for a moment incapacitated from action, lifting his arms above his head like one about to dive, he ran straight forward out of the pavilion. "'Here am I!' he cried. "'Huddlestone, kill me and spare the others!' His sudden appearance daunted, I suppose, our hidden enemies— for Northmore and I had time to recover, to seize Clara between us, one by each arm, and to rush forth to his assistance ere anything further had taken place. But scarce had we passed the threshold when there came near a dozen reports and flashes from every direction among the hollows of the links. Mr. Huddlestone staggered, uttered a weird and freezing cry, threw up his arms over his head and fell backward on the turf. Traditore! Traditore! cried the invisible avengers. And just then a part of the roof of the pavilion fell in, so rapid was the progress of the fire. A loud, vague, and horrible noise accompanied the collapse, and a vast volume of flame went soaring up to heaven. It must have been visible at that moment from twenty miles out at sea, from the shore at Graden Wester and far inland from the peak of Greysteel, the most eastern summit of the Calder Hills. Bernard Huddlestone, though God knows what were his obsequies, had a fine pyre at the moment of his death. 9. I should have the greatest difficulty to tell you what followed next after this tragic circumstance. It is all to me, as I look back upon it, mixed, strenuous, and ineffectual, like the struggles of a sleeper in a nightmare. Clara, I remember, uttered a broken sigh, and would have fallen forward to earth had not Northmore and I supported her insensible body. I do not think we were attacked. I do not remember even to have seen an assailant, and I believe we deserted Mr. Huddlestone without a glance. 
I only remember running like a man in a panic, now carrying Clara all together in my own arms, now sharing her weight with Northmore, now scuffling confusedly for the possession of that dear burden. Why we should have made for my camp in the Hemlock Den, or how we reached it, are points lost forever to my recollection. The first moment at which I became definitely sure Clara had been suffered to fall against the outside of my little tent, Northmore and I were tumbling together on the ground, and he, with contained ferocity, was striking for my head with the butt of his revolver. He had already wounded me twice on the scalp, and it is to the consequent loss of blood that I am tempted to attribute the sudden clearness of my mind. I caught him by the wrist. Northmore, I remember saying, you can kill me afterwards. Let us first attend to Clara. He was at that moment uppermost. Scarcely had the words passed my lips when he had leaped to his feet and ran toward the tent, and the next moment he was straining Clara to his heart and covering her unconscious hands and face with his caresses. Shame! I cried. Shame to you, Northmore! And giddy though I was, I struck him repeatedly upon the head and shoulders. He relinquished his grasp and faced me in the broken moonlight. I had you under and I let you go, said he. And now you strike me. Coward. You are the coward, I retorted. Did she wish your kisses while she was still sensible of what you wanted? Not she. And now she may be dying. And you waste this precious time and abuse her helplessness. Stand aside and let me help her. He confronted me for a moment, white and menacing. Then suddenly he stepped aside. Help her then, said he. I threw myself on my knees beside her and loosened as well as I was able her dress and corset. But while I was thus engaged, a grasp descended on my shoulder. Keep your hands off her, said Northmore fiercely. Do you think I have no blood in my veins? Northmore, I cried, if you will neither help her yourself nor let me to do so, do you know that I shall have to kill you? That is better? he cried. Let her die also. Where's the harm? Step aside from that girl and stand up to fight. You will observe, said I, half rising, that I have not kissed her yet. I dare you to, he cried. I do not know what possessed me. It was one of the things I am most ashamed of in my life, though, as my wife used to say, I knew that my kisses would be always welcome were she dead or living. Down I fell again upon my knees, parted the hair from her forehead, and with the dearest respect laid my lips for a moment on that cold brow. It was such a caress as a father might have given. It was such a one as was not unbecoming from a man soon to die to a woman already dead. And now, said I, I am at your service, Mr. Northmore. But I saw to my surprise that he had turned his back upon me. Do you hear? I asked. Yes said he, I do. If you wish to fight, I am ready. If not, go on and save Clara. All is one to me. I did not wait to be twice bidden, but stooping again over Clara continued my efforts to revive her. She still lay white and lifeless. I began to fear that her sweet spirit had indeed fled beyond recall and horror, and a sense of utter desolation seized upon my heart. 
I called her by name with the most endearing inflections. I chafed and beat her hands. Now I laid her head low, now supported it against my knees, but all seemed to be in vain, and the lids still lay heavy on her eyes. Northmore, I said, there's my hat. For God's sake, bring some water from the spring. Almost in a moment, he was by my side with the water. I have brought it in my own, he said. You do not grudge me the privilege. Northmore, I was beginning to say as I laved her head and breast, but he interrupted me savagely. Oh, you hush up, he said. The best thing you can do is to say nothing. I had certainly no desire to talk, my mind being swallowed up in concern for my dear love and her condition, so I continued in silence to do my best toward her recovery, and when the hat was empty, returned it to him with one word, more. He had perhaps gone several times upon this errand when Clara reopened her eyes. Now, said he, since she is better, you can spare me, can you not? I wish you a good night, Mr. Cassilis. And with that, he was gone among the thicket. I made a fire, for I now had no fear of the Italians who had even spared all the little possessions left in my encampment, and broken as she was by the excitement and the hideous catastrophe of the evening, I managed in one way or another, by persuasion, encouragement, warmth, and such simple remedies as I could lay my hand on, to bring her back to some composure of mind and strength of body. Day had already come when a sharp, Hist! sounded from the thicket. I started from the ground, but the voice of Northmore was heard, adding, in the most tranquil tones, Come here, Cassilis, and alone. I want to show you something. I consulted Clara with my eyes, and receiving her tacit permission, left her alone and clambered out of the den. At some distance off, I saw Northmore leaning against an elder, and as soon as he perceived me, he began walking seaward. I had almost overtaken him as he reached the outskirts of the wood. Look, said he, pausing. A couple of steps more brought me out of the foliage. The light of the morning lay cold and clear over that well-known scene. The pavilion was but a blackened wreck. The roof had fallen in, one of the gables had fallen out, and far and near the face of the lynx was cicatrized with little patches of burned furs. Thick smoke still went straight upward in the windless air of the morning, and a great pile of ardent cinders filled the bare walls of the house like coals in an open grate. Close by the islet, a schooner yacht lay to, and a well-manned boat was pulling vigorously for the shore. "'The Red Earl!' I cried. "'The Red Earl, twelve hours too late!' "'Feel in your pocket, Frank. Are you armed?' asked Northmore. I obeyed him and I think I must have become deadly pale. My revolver had been taken from me. You see, I have you in my power, he continued. I disarmed you last night while you were nursing Clara, but this morning... Here, take your pistol. No thanks, he cried, holding up his hand. I do not like them. That is the only way you can annoy me now. He began to walk forward across the links to meet the boat, and I followed a step or two behind. In front of the pavilion I paused to see where Mr. Huddlestone had fallen, but there was no sign of him, nor so much as a trace of blood. Graydon flow, said Northmore. He continued to advance until we had come to the head of the beach. No farther, please, said he. 
Would you like to take her to Grodden House? Thank you, replied I. I shall try to get her to the minister at Grodden Wester. The prow of the boat here grated on the beach, and a sailor jumped ashore with a line in his hand. Wait a minute, lads, cried Northmore, and then lower into my private ear. You had better say nothing of all this to her, he added. On the contrary, I broke out. She shall know everything that I can tell. You do not understand, he returned with an air of great dignity. It will be nothing to her. She expects it of me. Goodbye, he added with a nod. I offered him my hand. Excuse me, said he. It's small, I know, but I can't push things quite so far as that. I don't wish any sentimental business to sit by your hearth a white-haired wanderer and all that. Quite the contrary. I hope to God I shall never clap eyes on either one of you again. Well, God bless you, Northmore, I said heartily. Oh, yes, he returned. He walked down the beach, and the man who was ashore gave him an arm on board and then shoved off and leaped into the bows himself. Northmore took the tiller, the boat rose to the waves, and the oars between the thole pins sounded crisp and measured in the morning air. They were not yet halfway to the Red Earl, and I was still watching their progress when the sun rose out of the sea. One word more, and my story is done. Years after, Northmore was killed fighting under the colors of Garibaldi for the liberation of the Tyrol.